Welcome, 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 everyone, to this episode of Tech Cars Machines. I'm your host, Ali Tabibian, and you can read more about me and GTK Partners, the producer of TCM, in the episode notes. We are kicking off our first Machines episode with a bang, and a big bang. This episode is with Eddie Amos, Chief Technical Officer of GE Digital. General Electric, as many of you know, is the company that Thomas Edison started. Today, the company is mainly a purveyor of heavy capital equipment, such as jet engines, and that's why you heard the sound you heard at the opening. GE Digital is the company's software unit, and it's all about embracing capital equipment with modern software smarts. Sounds like tech cars machines, doesn't it? Now, no one has done more and invested more to evangelize and really bring to reality a world where complex physical machinery is mixed with, uh, is networked with sensors and software than GE. GE's name for this construct is the industrial internet. Generally, the industry started getting serious about the industrial internet oh, about 2015 or so. GE, however, started publicly focusing on the subject uh, at the CEO level, uh, no less, in 2011. A couple iterations of bringing things under the same roof led to what is now called GE Digital, and that unit is located or headquartered in San Ramon, uh, which is about an hour northeast of San Francisco, and they have about 2,000 employees there. The investment in GE Digital has been huge. About a billion dollars over five years is what was announced in 2011 as the founding investment in, uh, in this unit, and over one and a half billion has been spent on a handful of acquisitions since then, not to mention, of course, a large amount of time being spent by executives uh, around the company. GE wasn't just the first entity to blaze this path. It was way out in front. Of course, when you're pioneering into uncharted territory, you'll wind up going down some dead ends. In the case of GE, over the years, it's adjusted the scope of its offerings, sometimes adding through acquisitions, sometimes letting others do what it had originally intended to do itself. And it's also mainly uh, focusing its offerings now on end markets where GE itself sells equipment into rather than something broader, which is where it started. The reward for being early and dogged is that there's no one, whether other large equipment vendors, major tech firms, competing startups, that has the scope of GE Digital. I've uh, followed the space and attended GE Digital's conferences for four or five years now, and I've noticed that the attendees and competitor attitudes have really shifted over that time, from honestly a, a skeptical curiosity to now an emerging respect. In Tech Cars Machines, we've talked a lot about the common issues of sensing, connectivity, and data analysis between the worlds of cars and machines. So I should point out why you really won't hear much about sensors and connectivity in this machines episode. That's because this machines episode is about really big, expensive capital equipment. A power turbine probably costs around $25 million. Uh, a big jet engine costs anywhere from $10 to $35 million. Uh, now, those are retail prices, and I never pay retail. Even so, when something is that expensive, it makes sense to uh, censor it and connect it starting decades ago when doing those things was actually really expensive and difficult to do. What's different today with the equipment and the sensor data is the ambition around what to do with that data. It used to be about reporting machine characteristics to a human, generally about what's already happened. These days, there's a torrent of data coming from the sensors going directly to computing equipment that are trying to improve the operating efficiency of those, uh, of, of those assets and for making predictions about what's going to happen rather than what's already happened to influence things like maintenance and reliability. 
Let me provide a little detail on some acronyms and terms of art that Eddie uh, will use during this, uh, during this episode. Using software to improve operating efficiency of an asset is referred to as asset performance management or APM. Now this is different from BI or business intelligence and some of these other terms you've heard. That software tends to focus on processing financial or inventory data. The asset in APM is the machine itself. APM is about improving KPIs or key performance indicators of a process or a piece of equipment. The repository where all this data goes into has historically been called a historian. You'll hear Eddie refer to historians. Crunching all this data usually means using statistical techniques. A key one for part failure is called a Weibull analysis, W-E-I-B-U-L-L. And I believe uh, that approach was perfected in the 1950s, actually, but don't quote me on that. You'll hear the term SMEs or SMEs. That stands for small and medium enterprises, or in this case, simply mid-sized businesses that sell equipment. The terms M-I-M-L and A-I, which you'll hear about, of course, refer to machine intelligence, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. Without further ado, here's Eddie Amos. Tech. Cars. Machines. Subscribe here or at gtkpartners.com. Great. So we're here today with Dr. Eddie Amos, who's the chief technical officer of GE Digital, if I got that right. Did I get that right, Eddie, or did I? Yeah, it's, I, I, I kind of, you know, a jack of all trades. I'll do whatever they ask me to do. So a little chief you know, technology office here, a little building of applications there, whatever it takes. Great, great. So we're here in San Ramon, which is the headquarters for GE Digital. Um, Eddie, I think you're based out on, in, uh, in Roanoke, Virginia. Or as my wife would say, my uh, I really live on American Airlines seat, probably 28B flying back and <laughs> forth. But yes, I live in Roanoke, but I have my time out here. You know, nobody on this podcast is going to be- believe you're flying coach, but, you know, <laughs> but, we'll, but we'll go with it. <laughs> you, you would be surprised the next time you're on American Airlines, I'll be the guy in the back. <laughs> that's, uh, that's great. So you know what, Eddie? Give us a little bit of your background. Um, you come to GE with obviously a very technical background, but come to GE uh, Digital through an acquisition. So maybe give us a little bit of that history. Yeah, so that's, that's great. So many years ago, I worked uh, for a little company called Lotus Development. Most folks probably don't remember Lotus Development. We made a spreadsheet and actually worked on a, um, um, as a field engineer on a product called Lotus Notes back when it was introduced. You know, worked my way up. IBM acquired us. I was in the product management team at... Uh, IBM for WebSphere for many, many years. I got tired of traveling, believe it or not. So I went out and did two startups. One failed miserably. One was fairly successful. Got recruited by Microsoft. I uh, um, actually ran Visual Studio and .NET for many years for them before retiring and then moved back to Roanoke, Virginia to be a college professor and met uh, this gentleman who started Meridium and he had some really good questions and I was fascinated about his, uh, his company. So next thing you know, I was working for him, and uh, then GE acquired us. Great. So that's uh, actually a really interesting um, angle to come at explaining what GE Digital mm-hmm. is and, and, and does. When, um, when I was recently at Minds and Machines, which is the, the, the premier conference associated with digital, uh, GE Digital, and it's, uh, it's about every year, yep. asset performance management, which is essentially what Meridium did, was really front and center as the offering. And maybe coming at it from that angle, you can explain to us what was the original insight for GE Digital? And after a few years of being at it, um, what is it that the customers really want 
from GE? What, you know, the, the, obviously, when you're first, there's a, there's a process of figuring out, both at the vendor and the customer level, right. what works. What is working now? And it seems like Meridium is a big part of now what, what's working. So if you sit back and look at the history of asset performance management, there was a term probably coined about 22 years ago by a gentleman named Bonds Hart and, and Leif Erickson, who uh, worked uh, for Gartner at the time. And they were explaining this space, which wasn't really EAM and it wasn't really ERP. It was more focused on reliability of the assets. Uh, how do you make sure that you're protecting people, the planet, the profits of, of various companies? So they sat around one night and they said, well, it does this, it does this. And they finally came up and settled on the term asset performance management. So it has been a, you know, a education process as uh, it went through the years. But... GE is probably the company that made APM cool. So if you sit back and think about it, there is a lot of interesting things that happen with assets. Uh, GE is one of the few companies that actually designs, builds, manufactures, service, operates equipment. And if you think about from the time you design to you decommission an asset, a lot of things happen. So you may have designed it one way, okay, but then the operational aspects of that may be something totally different. So how do you come up with things like failure codes? How do you understand if something is strange, that it's, quite, it's not quite within sync of how it's supposed to operate? If I have downtime, what other pieces of equipment is it going uh, to affect? Do I have the critical spares where I need them? Can I say with great certainty that if I run this plant at 110%, I'm not going to cause uh, harm to the environment or my planet? So as we sat back and looked at it, we've been doing this for a long time. Time, but GE kind of took it to the next level. GE had uh, you know, instrumented many of the turbines they make, the airline engines, to so being able to come back and take that amount of data with the insights that we brought from APM, it was a match made in heaven. They had a lot of content, or we have a lot of content, have a lot of assets that we were able to bring into the model. So where a lot of companies can come back and perhaps run analytics, that's only one thing you do. So is that basically you're importing data and then you're running a you know, BI tool to come back and find an anomaly? Well, APM is much broader than that. We're coming back not only finding those anomalies, we're telling you why it happened, when it happened, when it's likely going to occur again, what other pieces of equipment did it impact, what is your risk exposure, and how do you make sure that you're you know, reducing that so that you can keep your, op your plan operational. So it's a whole different mindset. And a lot of times, it, how the, you know, a lot of folks in the industry did, it goes back to the old Jiffy Lube, preventive maintenance, change your oil every 3,000 miles. Well, that's good, but you know, guess what? Most modern cars now can go a year or 10,000 miles with synthetic oils and you never have to change it. But I can promise you, next time I'm out flying my favorite Cessna, they're going to ask me to have that airplane checked every 100 hours, preventative maintenance, which you probably don't need to do. So by instrumenting things, understanding how the equipment operates, you can come back and build in a lot more efficiencies. Let me give you an example. There's a refinery partner that I worked with that uh, uh, wanted to build a new refinery, but it's very costly. You have to go through environmental concerns, you have to get a lot of regulations uh, passed on your behalf, and then you also have to sit back and look at just the pure sheer capex of building a refinery. So the trick is, how do you keep that refinery running longer? Now, if oil is $100 a barrel, you want to run it 7 by 24 okay? But you don't want to do something that's going to cause problems with the equipment or the, you know, the, the various environmental things you're trying to do. So by using the APM methodologies, we were able actually to extend this plant's uh, refinery production by about 18 months. So what they basically created was a virtual plant. 
So they were able to double their output without increasing their capex, stay within the safety parameters, and never miss a beat. We try to do that with every industry we serve. And because we design, build, manufacture, service, operate equipment, we have those unique insights. We know the failure codes. We know the recommendations. We operate equipment. We know the operating characteristics. We service equipment. We know the servicing history of it. And so when you bring all that together, it's not like you're updating a file and running analytics against it. You're running real-time analytics against the process to help you build more efficiencies in your operation. Great. Thank you for that explanation. Meridium, when it was independent, didn't wasn't associated with any particular manufacturer, right? It was basically coming at it from the no. software angle. What was your experience being a pure software vendor versus now an integrated software and equipment vendor? And why was one the right answer in one period of time and now the other uh, is the better answer? So at Meridium, we were very heterogeneous in nature. So we worked with you know, any number of historians, any number of equipment manufacturers. We actually created benchmarking software where we would work with customers to bring in heterogeneous data types to understand things in terms of, you know, the 18 KPIs that were important to them or let them benchmark against their peers. Uh, but we were always, uh, with anybody in the space, there's always the struggle to have more data, more data in terms of how things were built, manufactured how things really work, what, are, what is the operational aspects of that data. So by GE acquiring us, all of a sudden we were like kids in a candy store because we had a plethora of new data that we never had access to. So then it was the ability to take what we had already done from a heterogeneous perspective, add in interesting things that GE had done across their various business units, and all of a sudden change the mathematical formulas in terms of adding insights that our customers had never imagined uh, in the past. So in one stance, it's kind of nice to be a heterogeneous standalone, but you always run into that content problem. If you're within a company like GE, you have a wealth of content, then it's more of an exercise of which content do you use uh, because you can very quickly get into data overload if you're not careful. But I think in many ways, by GE acquiring us, we've been able to sharpen our game. We've been able to go into markets we've never imagined. We've got better insights into uh, various pieces of equipment that we never would have figured out on our own uh, because a, we don't design, build, manufacture, and service equipment. So, and that's a problem of many of the, the startup analytic companies out there today. They're only going to be able to give you a point of view. You may have an ERP system with a EAM component, enterprise asset management system, that can tell you work order history. Okay, great. Maybe I add in a historian that gives you pressure flow temperature, but that's still very limited data compared to everything that happens in the life cycle of an asset. It's not going to tell you the failure codes. It's not going to tell you the recommendations. It's not going to tell you what's actually helping from an operational perspective or servicing history. Uh, so when you bring them all together, it really, really helps you define the algorithms you know, more precisely. It allows you to leverage things that we're really moving into uh, very aggressively, like in artificial intelligence and machine learning. And because we have all of those data flows, it's not like we're going out saying, give me your data and we're going to build something uh, or bring in 100 data scientists and build something that new. We're actually building the intelligence right in the applications. So our uh, design center or our M&D center in Atlanta, where we actually you know, manage and monitor a third of the world's power supply, we're adding MI components directly into the software right now. So we can go back and look at failure codes. We can go back and look at the history of components. We can come back and make better decisions in near real time uh, without having as many humans in the loop. So it's quite interesting. And I don't think we could have done that as a standalone entity without GE. 
It's interesting. So if I may maybe oversimplify it, it sounds like if you're not the equipment manufacturer, you're starting with the data you have or the data you can get and try to hopefully get to a great answer. But if you are the equipment manufacturer, you have the most relevant data to start with. So the question is wrapping the software skills and the, and the information uh, assessment skills around yeah, it. Let me, is that you, let me give you another example. I was, I was called out to one of our energy customers in the Midwest two weeks ago. Part of the, uh, the, this organization used the old Meridium software, which is now uh, GE APM, and the other part didn't. And I've been trying to get the part that, that does not use APM to use it for probably three years now. And uh, I was in town, so I stopped by and saw them, and they wanted to show me their new APM-like type of software. So basically, they created a data lake, which is great, and they were running a, um, you know, a famous off-the-shelf uh, uh, software BI tool on top of it, and they found an anomaly. And they were so proud of that anomaly, and I was happy for them they found an anomaly, but they couldn't tell me, once again, what caused it what other pieces of equipment was infected, what were they were going to do for their ongoing uh, maintenance operation to make sure that never happened again. So it was a very, very limited data set. It's like a lot of the startups you hear like in Chicago or here in the Valley. It's like they will come up and say, we have a platform, but then you have to give us your data. Okay, well, great. That's going to give you a point of view, but is it giving you all five points of view that we have because we design, build, manufacture, service, and operate equipment? Well, the answer is no. And that you can come up with decent insights, perhaps on one stream of data, but you're never going to get the optimal solution with just one. So let me expand on that point a little bit then. As a frequent uh, airline passenger, yeah. Yeah. I'm very thankful that the key component that GE provides, the, the engines, are probably some of the most reliable creations of humanity. Um, and I'm assuming that other things that GE does is imbued with the same kind of quality, the turbines for power generation, et cetera, is if, if they're the most um, reliable objects maybe in that system, how much does GE have to go beyond what it provides, sort of capture a heterogeneous environment for, then, for, for, for the overall system reliability right, right. to be something that it can affect? Is that, is that a good question? So the way that we would look at it is so we go back to uh, an airline who buys our engines, and we're focused on outcomes, you know, how many uh, you know, safe takeoffs and landings that we can have. Uh, you, when you step back and look at the airline industry, it goes back to a lot of MRO practices that have been around for years and years and years and years. And in many ways, the, the GE Aviation Group has been, you know, the leaders in terms of thinking about this. They have built sensors directly into the engines. They have built the most incredible algorithms that set on, like, the Predicts platform that can come back and tell you things like slotting strategies. You've got a particular engine that's coming up for a maintenance repair. You happen to be over a certain area. Maybe it's time to bring it in because the parts you need are at this facility at this time. How do you optimize everything that happens from the time that plane is boarded to it takes off? Uh, we're working with several of the uh, airlines right now with our, our, our chief digital officer in aviation on how they take our time series components and put it back in to build more efficiencies on top of it. Once we have the data, um, you know, we have incredible algorithms. It's how do we build on them? How do we make them smarter? Uh, going back to my artificial intelligence MI uh, component earlier, Part of our team right now is working with the aviation group on coming back, just you know, trolling through all of that data that we get off the engines, which is a lot, and coming up with what are the characteristics? Are there things you know, that we haven't seen? Are there things that we can improve on? And how do we take that full cycle right back into the manufacturing process? 
it's pretty fascinating. So same happens with power, same happens with transportation. But the thing I guess I'm really excited about when you think about like the aviation example you just gave us, um, since we design, build, manufacture, service, and operate equipment, I'm sure you've heard about additive manufacturing. So additive is probably one of the most things that just gets me excited every day of my life. I have my little 3D printer at home, uh, and it prints some pretty cool things, but imagine you know, printing uh, components of an airline engine. Well, if you start thinking about that in terms of everything we do in terms of a digital transformation within GED, all of a sudden, you know, we have equipment on the plant floor. We have automation software. We have manufacturing execution systems. So we're going through that whole design process of building these components. Then we have APM in the middle that's monitoring the reliability of these components, telling you that something's likely to break. Then we have field service software like ServiceMax that's sitting there so that we can come back out and, and make sure that we have the right service technician with the right parts at the right location at the right time. Now, one of the most costly things that our customers have are a lot of spares sitting around. If you've got a critical asset, you want to make sure you got the spares close by in case it breaks because you don't want downtime. So imagine this world now that we have APM saying, there's probably a 95% probability that particular fan blade is going to break or you know, malfunction within the next 30 days. Send that over to the MES system, send it to additive, print it out, report back to the, the field service and have it sitting there when the technician shows up. Be able to build that proactive, predictive maintenance component into the software and being able to reduce those spares is priceless. Aviation uh, is breaking new ground in that arena and we're just leveraging our software to help them out. That's a, that's a really interesting thread that I'd like to pursue for just a second and, and I want to get back to the AI and, and, and uh, MI and ML stuff that you touched, uh, touched on as well. Because in the world of industrial IoT, I think the large focus, the large set of discussions out there are about reducing unscheduled downtime. Mm -hmm. What essentially you seem to be saying it actually a very significant component of the value, especially when it's a really expensive component like a jet engine or the turbine, is actually doing scheduled maintenance either less or more intelligently. That that's a, I think that's an underreported source of value as far as the, the, the popular press at least is, is concerned, I think. And as we build more intelligence into the software, I mean, we have incredible geospatial information anyway, um, especially on the newer sensors that are out there. So we probably know within a couple of meters, you know, where the equipment is and where the service tech is. So imagine, you know, if you have a service contract and you're sending somebody else to work on uh, plant facility A, B, and C, but you're all of a sudden that your APM software says, ah, we're getting a couple of components uh, within six meters of you that's kind of moving into the questionable range to have him and her check that out right then and there instead of having to send out a service tech again. Uh, another great example, um, you know, two pumps come off the line, one serial number apart, one in Baytown, Texas, one in Minneapolis, St. Paul. One, never had a problem with it. One, the seal's failing every six months. It goes back to your MIAI question, what's happening? So, you know, in the, in the, in the old days, you'd sit back and send the tech up to replace the seal over and over and over. You know, using the, you know, the software that we're putting together now and some of the, you know, MIAI capabilities, we can start injecting other data sources into that and start having the data scientists do more what-ifs. So what's the difference between Baytown, Texas, which is, you know, down to Houston, and Minneapolis-St. Paul? Well, one has a lot of solidity in the air. So about being able to pop in everything from atmospheric data to geospatial data to see if it's an incline, you can come back saying, ah, 
Yeah, the salinity air and the air is breaking down those seals at a higher rate than normally everywhere else. So what can you do with that? How many other pumps do I have in like type of locations around the world? So when I send the service tech out, I can make sure that I have the part so that they can repair it so that it never goes down. Oh, by the way, let's go back to R&D and figure out why that seal is failing anyway, upgrade the material so that we replace it so that we don't have to ever deal with it again. It's that whole closed loop process. So being able to predict it, being able to come back and make sure you've got the right people at the right location with the right parts on time, makes happy customers because we want to make sure they're running seven by 24. How is GE equipment today different or being designed differently because of what GE Digital has been doing in the last three or four years? Has it been long enough for that feedback to affect the design of the, uh, of the equipment? I think that you know, when you sit back and you look at uh, the, the insights that we're giving and what our, our, our global research group's doing, that the insights have increased. We are being able to come back and, uh, and identify possible failure points quicker. We're also probably finding more optimization points faster than anything else. So in a lot of cases, as we bring the, the folks, the, the information together, I see the big thing about IoT is you ingest, you store, you analyze, and you act on the data. And it kind of comes back because we're unique and we're collecting a lot of data, we can bring it back in and it basically, you learn upon what you know. I mean, a Weibel analysis is a Weibel analysis is a Weibel analysis. But imagine running other components along with that Weibel analysis to come back and have better insights. We have customers that come back and want to combine things to make it you know, new and interesting. In the petroleum industry, there's something called you know, APA 580-581. One is a quant methodology, one is a qual methodology. If you're a mathematician, you're probably going to choose one or the other and be happy with it. But we have customers that say, no, what I really want is a quasi-formula. Can you give me the ability to take two data sources, add them together, and run new algorithms uh, you know, on it from an AI perspective? Well, sure you can. But you start back at saying, what if? What is possible? And that's when it becomes interesting. And then that's when it helps you go back and build better products, whether you're in R&D, whether you're in the GRC researching it, or whether you're you know, folks like me who's in applied science that's making it work every day. Interesting. As a uh, one-time engineer myself, when you see assets that are extraordinarily reliable and affect life safety, you know they're heavily over-engineered. So this data may actually be, be something that would make the production of those uh, equipment essentially more efficient overall. But you really need 12,000 sensors in a jet engine is, is kind of a, eventually, yep. if nothing has ever reported something of, of value, you could probably do without. I share the story quite often uh, to the reliability component. I'm a private pilot. And when I was living in the Pacific Northwest, I used to you know, have these different flight paths I would go out and look at. And one was over a, a particular oil refinery up on the Puget Sound. And one day I flew over it and part of it was gone. They'd had a catastrophic event, which people lost their lives. Uh, and it was kind of, you know, wow, how does that happen? And it kind of comes back to identifying those critical assets and understanding those lifing algorithms and understanding what you can do. That really got me interested in the space in the, in the first time. There's things called integrity operating windows. If you run this facility um, at 100%, you can expect X amount of life. But you know, person B may run it at 110%, but forget to do the right logging capabilities or the software doesn't know about it. Next person runs it at 120%, you got a catastrophic event. But you know, if you come back and say, with the what ifs and the uh, software we have now, we're actually recording all that. So we can come back and say, before you press the button and say, run it at 110%, it's probably gonna tell you no, not a good thing to do because you've basically 
uh, affected the lifing of that piece of material or that piece of equipment, don't do it. But you're right. As an engineer, you know, being able to come back, put that in the feedback loop, are you engineering it too heavy, engineering it too light, or engineering it just right? It's great insights we can provide. Oh, interesting. When you say artificial intelligence, AI, what does that represent to you? Oh. So there's two pieces. There, there's the machine learning algorithms that we come back and we run against data sets to come back and have interesting you know, insights on things. So probably the, the, the classic example is you got a lot of textual information coming in out of an EAM system. You may have long and short text that you can take that uh, information and come back and measure it against another data source and say, ah, yeah, that's a rotating piece of equipment. Ah, that's a bearing problem, okay, and help you know, identify what it is. So we have components like that that run all the time. We have components that go out and look at things like cases and alerts that are happening to come back and pick up certain patterns. Artificial intelligence is not like the robot, but it's how you kind of put intelligence in the software. So I can come back on those algorithms and actually control or adjust things automatically for you within reason. Um, I wouldn't round trip probably something to a control room floor at a nuclear power plant. Not a good thing to do for security purposes. But can we come back and give the, the software, give you the recommendations of how the optimal setting should be? Can I come back in the software uh, you know, and give you the, the ability to come back and say, if you do this flight path at this time, at this altitude, with this amount of wind resistance, you can increase your fuel efficiency by X, Y, or Z. So how do you build that into it so that it's not the human basically asking the question, it's the software looking for the answer, alerting the humans of the possible outcomes. And then you can come back and decide how you want to act upon that data. Do you want to intervene or do you want the software to make adjustments? Interesting. In that process, in that process of tuning that system so it, it comes up with an interesting input to the human, how much of it is, if you will, the genius of the, of the mathematics and the algorithms of the person responsible for those? And how much of it does it really need essentially a, a tight integration with, the, with, a, with a person on the front line, with a domain specialist, to, um, for that insight to be valuable? The answer to that question can vary greatly. I mean, in my world, content is king or queen. So you step back and look at the various data sources that you have, being able to combine them in a logical manner to produce the outcomes is priceless. If you have that, then you take a domain or a subject matter expert and they can work with you on the parts in terms of, yep, that feels like a rotating piece of equipment and that feels like a bearing failure and this is what we know. And we can come back and, and, and basically extrapolate a lot of that out on any given day, but it's the nuances that the SMEs come back in. Yeah, oh yeah, it's, when it operates under these conditions and it's hot in South Carolina on an August day, these characteristics have been noticed over time. Now you could come back and say, I can record those over time with the sensors, but in many ways it's gonna be those SMEs that who've worked with it, who actually understand it, that can come back and provide insights that maybe we didn't think from the mathematics equation or we didn't think from the data sources. And don't forget, you know, there's a lot of things that you know, we just can't do yet. So let's go back on a pipeline inspection, okay? You can run you know, a pipeline pig down a strand, you can pull out tons of ILA data, terabytes of it, we can come back and mathematically calculate what the corrosion is going to look like inside of that pipe. That's inside of the pipe. You're still going to have to inspect the outside too because you could have a dent, you could have a bolt coming out, you could have other things. So that's when the two worlds kind of come together. 
but I don't think there's perfect math here. The, there are SMEs out there that have a lot of domain expertise that if we could capture it better in software, we could probably make a lot of the algorithms even smarter. So to me, that's just a, another source of content. Interesting. So um, you re th this is really a complement. The system is really a complement to the user. For the most part, at least in the, in the near term, there's not it's human judgment isn't really being replaced, it's being augmented with uh... You know, even when we build the, you know, a lot of the algorithms out, I mean, could I come back in and say, you know, take a, something like we call cognitive analytics. I could take a cognitive analytic and go against a huge data set and extrapolate a lot of things out and go back to my, my uh, you know, bearing failure. I could probably tell you within a 80 to 90% range that yes, it's a bearing failure. But nine times out of 10, I'm going to want a human, an engineer, to come back, review it, make sure the recommendation's right, and press go before we do that. Same way on a control panel. We can come back and tell you that a failure has occurred or um, you know, uh, an alert's been tripped. Can we reset them? Absolutely. But in some cases, you may not want to reset them. You want, want the human to be in the loop to come back and look at other factors before you do it. Can the software do it? Absolutely. It's that fine line of what you want the software to do compared to what you want the human to verify before you act upon it. And, uh, and I know the answer is probably different depending on which part of GE we're talking about. Who is the user the system is being designed for? Is it the factory worker who wants to know what, when to replace that belt? Or factory engineer, design engineer, management, all the way to financial analyst? Who's the Who's it really being targeted? For? I'll, I'll use one of Kramer from CNBC, from the shop floor to the top floor. That audience varies. <laughs> so there's going to be folks that's down on the shop floor who's building it. Okay, they're going to have they want to want to know more things like inventory turns. They want to know more about you know is my supply chain optimized? Do I have my two pieces of machinery talking to each other on the MES line with a gigabit Ethernet switch on. The characteristics they're looking for is probably going to be much different from those of a reliability or operation maintenance engineer. They're going to be looking at the operational components of it after it's been manufactured, how it actually operates, how reliable is it, what are the strategies I need to put in place. Uh, compared to a field service person, it's going to be looking at how do I optimize my routes, how do I make sure I have the right spares at the right location you know, at the right time. Up to the sea level, how do I aggregate that data? Is this supplier better than that supplier? Um, you know, can I you know, uh, reduce my inventory turns by such and such? So it depends on which part of the design chain you're on, who's going to benefit from the equipment. But we have dashboards set up in the, the software today that goes every, everywhere from a person who is on the factory floor looking at uh, the, uh, the raw materials coming through the chain to build something, all the way to you know, an executive saying, okay, if I don't increase this component on the, um, uh, you know, the factory floor, I'm gonna have to shut down a line, which wouldn't be good. You know, and I have a lot of interest today in the reliability components. You know, downtime costs money. So you know, a lot of the C-levels are looking at the data now saying, okay, what are we doing? Are we spending the right amount of money? It's like insurance. I got two knobs I can turn. One is gonna be financial, one's gonna be risk. Can I accept more risk? Uh, am I willing to do this? So it gives you, regardless of where you're at on the shop floor, top floor, or anywhere in between, it gives you the ability to analyze and make decisions like you've never been able to do before. Now, that goes back to you know, a lot of peers and uh, you know, startups in the industry. I, I don't really think they understand the domain to the point that they should because it comes back to anybody can take a set of data, put it in a CSV file, 
put it up and run your favorite machine learning algorithms on it. But that's not where the real beauty comes in on a digital transformation. It's how are you using the data to basically transform your business. That's going to require a lot of sensors. That's going to require a lot of algorithms. That's going to require a lot of inputs from many data sources so that you can come back and, and make uh, good decisions. One of the biggest things we probably get hit with every day is, yeah, that's great if you've got a greenfield operation. Everything's brand new. Everything's got sensors on it. But guess what? The world's not like that. There's a lot of brownfield operations. How do we go back and work with those folks? Do we have the right vibration monitors on there? Do we have the you know, right electrical current pulses out there? So there's many ways to move you know, customers across that continuum and give them insights. It's just where you start and what value are you looking for. So it's interesting, you're, what you're describing is a very broad and comprehensive solution that, that GE Digital has to offer. And if I recall correctly, in the beginning, the solution was maybe not as broad, but also kind of taller, right? There was a, by necessity, when you're sort of first delivering a solution, you almost have to deliver a reference design that includes mm -hmm. everything from a sort of an AWS type of Amazon Web Services type right. of equipment all the way to the top. How do you see, where is that architecture today and how do you see it developing um, uh, sort of the next few years? Yeah, so when Bill Roos started the, the group, um, you know, he had the foresight to sit back and say, you know, a lot of the problems I'm seeing in the industry are common problems that are repeatable. And then he started looking across the software assets we had in the company and found that, gee, as a company, had some pretty incredible assets that were basically standalone silo products. So you may have heard of uh, components like SmartSignal. SmartSignal is very widely used in the industry today. Uh, it gives you very interesting insights. We learn every day and do new blueprints of what we call the daily catches of insights that we can share with customers. Well, that was one solution. And then you sit back and think about APM. Well, APM was solving a whole different set of problems. Uh, it was looking at the reliability-based maintenance. It was how do you bring more life you know, out of it. So that was another silo. And then you look at things like uh, manufacturing execution systems, MES. Well, we had two of those, you know, one for one set of manufacturing, one for another. Oh, then we had automation systems, SCADAs, historians, all of those components that tied together. So when you sit back and you, you look at it, it was very, very vertically focused. But when you started thinking about what was the commonality of them, it all revolves around something called an asset. Um, when you step back and look at someone like a company like SAP, they built everything they had off of a financial model, okay, and they extended out. When Tom Siebel and Mark Benioff, they, one created Siebel, one created Salesforce.com, it was based on a customer model, everything about the sales cycle, that customer, everything that you want to know. As we thought about it, it was, it was really about the asset from design to decommission. So then we started looking at that portfolio that was very vertically siloed, and how do we bring it together? And so that's what we, the quest that we've been on. We thought about digital transformation. How do we get your workers so they're actually using this material to take advantage of the change that's happening in the industry? How do you come back and then integrate these software products together so that we can give you a view from beginning to end? So when you look at GE today, it's taken the best practices of the past 20 years, software products, it's brought them back into a phase of what we look as a digital transformation. How do we gain really good insights across the entire value chain? And then how do we make a seamless solution? And guess what? Different customers will be at different parts of that value chain and not make them all take the whole solution at one time, but let them start slow and grow fast. 
But what we find is, is over time, instead of buying a bunch of point solutions, people are buying the suite because they want to get the end-to-end -end view. They want to be able to have a view that's going to allow them to see what happens from the time it leaves the, you know, the shop floor to we're actually servicing it out in the field. So it's gone from a very vertical, siloed approach to a very horizontal approach. But even with the horizontal approach, we had to build the software uh, in a manner that allows for maximum extensibility. Uh, because everybody wants to do things just a tad different. We wanted to make sure that we didn't fo put folks in the old ERP syndrome where you had to come back and build a bunch of one-offs that could never be upgraded. So the extensibility that we offer, we like to think more about configuration than you know customization. How do you take the bits? How do you add them? How do you drop algorithms down in the runtime? How can you act, uh, you know, leverage our asset model? How do you build new applications off the components that we have that solve the, the world's problem? So to answer your question, vertical to horizontal with great vertical extensibility built off of it. So the business units here will take our product and do things with it that's up and beyond what we intended. That's okay, because as a, as a horizontal platform, we'll understand 70 to 80% of a particular problem domain. And then back to your SMEs earlier, that's when they can really come in and do their magic, build something that's going to be unique for aviation or unique for power or renewables. And I'm imagining your ability to partner with uh, providers of other technical solution extends to uh, solutions that are vertical across, um, across equipment, uh, as well at the, at the lower parts of the stack, yeah. right? Layers that manage you know, the, the security or upgrading of the firmware. So the way that we you kind of view the, the stack in general is that we want it to be very plug and play. So if folks want to come in and plug in a different set of uh, you know, algorithms or security protocols from the operation network to the control network up to the business network, yeah, it, we should enable that. We should be able to work with them in terms of how they display uh, information on, on various devices, how they hook in various third-party devices within the uh, APM software, you know, GE owns a historian. Well, there's a lot of good historians out in the world. There's OSIsoft, there's Honeywell, um, there's, um, you know, it's like 12 of them we plug into. But, you know, there's many of them out there. And, you know, you have to be extensible enough to say, come one, come all, uh, to make this thing work. So we won't be the beginning or end of any conversation. We'll know probably more about GE equipment than anybody on the planet, as we should. Uh, we will know a lot about third-party equipment because we operate third-party facilities and we have a lot of data, metadata that we've collected. Customers always own their data. But then being able to plug in other sources, customers get great value of it. So I haven't seen one system that someone hasn't asked us to plug into that we couldn't uh, because of the extensibility of the product. Now I'll say that and I'll have one on my desk this afternoon. But that's the, that's the gist. We want to make it open. We want to make it extensible. We want to work with data types that's not necessarily GE. We want to own solutions that are not necessarily GE. Uh, in the next several months, I'm going to be publishing a, what I call the white space map. Here's areas that are interesting in this space that I have no desire to go out and build software on. But other folks can go out and build a very uh, interesting software practice on it. We've got one around spares optimization right now that I'll give you rudimentary capabilities off the product, but this was a wide open space for one of our partners to build something great on it, in which they have. I've got about 12 of these areas that I want to put out there. So partners are important. We want to give them the ability to you know, be a part of the ecosystem, grow the ecosystems out. Other equipment vendors want to plug in. Our asset model is very open. We want them to plug into it. 
Other analytic vendors want to play in what we do. We have a OData layer, an abstraction layer across ours, so they can take advantage of that. So we're trying to keep it open. We're trying to keep it you know, horizontal. We're trying to solve big problems. Outstanding, and Eddie, you've been very generous with your time. Let me end it by saying, would you like to point to anything currently or in the future which you're really excited about in terms of what what, what, what change is coming up that your, that your GE's customers are really going to go, wow, you know what, it's, this is, the, this is the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, at least this year's rainbow? So I'll, I'll give you a couple of things that we're working on right now. And, you know, I can't give you exact dates because that kind of gets into things we may be promising you that we shouldn't. Uh, but what are we working on in the labs? That's kind of interesting. Okay, so... Things that we're working on in labs right now, we've got a new set of edge technologies that's quite remarkable that we've been working on for quite a while. And we've just you know, finished a tour with the analysts, which they've compared what we've been doing to what's in the, uh, the industry right now. And they say, by far, we're ahead of the pack. Now, this is going to give us better ways to ingest data, you know, run analytics on the edge. It's the next generation of things that we've had in the market. But with a lot more functionality. We've been working on a new set of tooling. Uh, last year at Monza Machines, you may have noticed, we talked about something called Predict Studio. We've taken that a uh, little bit to the next level. Uh, we've, we've brought it, embedded into the product, uh, which is quite exciting. I saw the, uh, the early beta of that, which we'll be putting out in the near future. We've got another set of uh, tooling that for people who want to extend our, our, our product out, SIs, ISVs accordingly, they can do this in a better, you know, more easily drag and drop manner without having to get knee deep in code. Uh, it gives you the ability to code if you want. New uh, uh, plugins that we're doing in terms of sensor type of components. Lots of new content providers that, that we're working on. We've talked about Predicts Private Cloud, a big reference customer coming up on that second half of the year that we're quite excited to announce. So um, if you liked Monza Machines last year, you're going to love it this year because um, when I'm telling the machine or telling the dev group and I'm telling our customers, we're going to be Missouri, the show me state this year. So the things we're going to show on the floor are going to be real. They're going to be live. It's not going to be uh, a PowerPoint uh, like a lot of our competitors do when we Encourage everyone to come to Monza Machines and touch it and play with it and give us feedback on how we can make it better. I think this year, it's in San Francisco, but it's moving back to one of the piers. Halloween weekend. Now so we I'm going to dress it. up like a middle-aged software guy. You know, wear khakis <laughs> and a blue shirt. So. <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let you borrow one of my blue blazers. <laughs> Anything else, Eddie? I mean, you've been wonderful. You know, if you want to learn more about uh, what we're doing, you know, check out the digital side on GE. Come to Minds and Machines. It's a great event. You'll get to meet uh, the product managers, the developers, the executives. You know, challenge us on what we're doing. Uh, you'll start seeing more and more events that we're going to be doing in the future out around customer listening tours uh, worldwide. So if you see us in town, please stop by. We'd love to meet with folks and challenge you and uh, challenge us on what we're doing. Let us show you. Uh, what we're doing. At the end of the day, we're here to protect uh, people's, the planet, and the profits of our, our customers. So, Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Tech. Cars. Machines. Subscribe here or at gtkpartners.com.